0: you're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Okay, today we are in Matthew chapter six. So make sure you have your Bible out and open to Matthew chapter six. And uh, just to to preface where we're headed today, uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're taking another kind of step through that, uh, this set of sermons through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus's longest sermon. It's also his most famous sermon. And if you want to think about what's happening uh, in these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it's Jesus as the king. He's presenting himself as the king, and he's showing us what life with him, what life in his kingdom with him as the king looks uh, looks like. He's showing us, maybe you can think about it this way, he's showing us what it means to be a Christian, what the Christian life is like. Um, He's showing us what, what the sort of people he... Uh, lived, died, and rose from the dead to create what those people look like. That's the point. That's what he's doing. He's giving us a a living, breathing illustration and samples of what it means to be a Christian. Now, if you think about the ground we covered in Matthew chapter 5, the main thing happening, this is where we spent the last several weeks, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, And he's addressing them in Matthew chapter 5 at the level of their teaching. So six times in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you have heard it said, this is him correcting how they're interpreting the law. They've taken the law of God in the Old Testament and now they're saying these things, they're interpreting it this way. So he's addressing them at the level of teaching. You have heard that it was said, but then he comes back on the backside of that and says, "But, but now I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but now I tell you he's addressing them at the level of teaching. Then you get to Matthew chapter 6, and he's not addressing them at the level of teaching. He's addressing them at the level of their lives. Now, as difficult as Matthew 5 was, and if you were here last week, it's one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. Love your enemies. A really hard text, but he's addressing them at the level of of their teaching last week. This week, it's lives, and as difficult as Matthew 5 was, As difficult as the words of Jesus are, Matthew 6 gets even harder, even harder. And our text today is difficult. He's addressing us at the level of our lives. Most of us don't like to be addressed at the level of our lives. We would much rather Jesus address address us at the level of our teaching, and what we think and see, as opposed to how we live, how how we think about our, our lives. But this is where Jesus is going today. And I want to take this passage in three parts, in three parts. Here's the first part. The first thing we see here in this text is that Jesus cares about our doing. He cares about our doing. He cares about the way we live. He cares about our lives. Uh, You see this in verses 1 and kind of getting into verse 2. Starting off Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness. Practicing your righteousness is is code word for how you live. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2. Look at the way verse 2 starts. Thus... When you give to the needy, when you give, there's an assumption, when you give, Jesus cares about our lives. So the primary point in Matthew chapter 6, these these opening verses, the the primary point is to deliver a warning. This is why Matthew chapter 6 starts with the word beware. It's a word of warning. That's the primary thing that Jesus is doing. He's alerting us to something that we need to be watchful of. But before we get to the warning, I want you just to see and allow this passage to remind you that, that what you do matters. Your life matters. What you do, what you don't do. These things really do matter to Jesus. Uh, that that phrase, practicing your righteousness, um, that is a shorthand for your good deeds in your life, what your life looks like, the things you do in your life. That, that's a code word for um, pursuing Jesus obedience to Jesus, um, holiness in your life, like you actually becoming more like Jesus in the way that you're living, that, that's, that's all re- under that kind of heading of practicing your righteousness. So it would be tempting to, to view this passage and to read this passage and think, you know, Jesus, he really doesn't care about our righteousness, he really doesn't care about um, if we get around to obedience or not. I mean, if, if you do, Jesus is probably great with it, but if you don't, he's probably okay with it too. It would be tempting to see this passage like that, but that, that couldn't be further from the, t- the truth. W- what you do matters. It matters greatly to Jesus. And you see this throughout the Bible. And so in, in the New Testament in particular, you have verses like Hebrews 12, 14. The author of Hebrews reminds us, he says, strive, that's a command, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now that's a sobering text, isn't it? This is how much your life matters. He says, strive for holiness, because if there is not holiness in your life, it doesn't matter what you're professing about Jesus. What you say you believe about Jesus, if there's not a, a practical holiness in our life, we will not see Jesus. Now, to be clear, the, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible does not teach salvation by works. The Bible does teach that everyone who has been rescued by Jesus has been rescued. They have been saved by putting their faith in the good work of Jesus. It's not their works. It's by putting their faith in the good works of Jesus. But the Bible over and over and over again is going to say that those who have put their faith in the good works of Jesus, good works begin to emanate and grow and, and be produced in their life. This is throughout the Bible. This is uh, James's point in James chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's James's point. That, that if, if faith just stays alone, it's really not genuine faith, because saving faith never stays alone. Saving faith always, over time, begins to produce g- good works. Good deeds give evidence of genuine faith. The Bible over and over says it. This is why the author of Hebrews says, Without holiness, you will not see Jesus. You will not see the Lord. But, but that author of Hebrews, he's also telling us we have to strive for holiness, that there has to be strife and work and discipline uh, to, to move toward holiness. Holiness will not just sort of happen in your life. It won't just happen in my life. It won't just happen in your life. No one stumbles into holiness. There has to be a striving. There has to be pursuit. There has to be fresh commitments. There has to be the cultivation of habits in our life. Uh, this is why when Paul is encouraging us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, He's encouraging us toward godliness. And to encourage us toward godliness, he says, train yourself for it. Train yourself for godliness. Now, if you've ever tried to become good at anything, you know it takes training. And this is the metaphor that he's using. He's just saying, look at your life and what you want to become good at. If you're going to become good uh, good at anything, it takes work, it takes striving, it takes discipline, it takes sacrifice. If you want to be good at a sport, if you want to be good with an instrument, if you want to be good at fill in the blank, anything in life, it requires training. And Paul's point is the same is true of godliness. If you want to know God, it takes discipline. If you want to love God more, it takes training. If you want to grow up in your relationship with Jesus, it takes takes a striving. This is what he's getting at there. Your life matters in these ways. So you see this in in Matthew chapter 6. Think about Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18 like this. Uh, The primary point that Jesus is going to make is in verse 1. But then he offers three illustrations to support and make the, the, the primary point. So the primary points, chapter 1, then three illustrations to help tease out and show the primary point. And the three illustrations that he gives in Matthew 6, one is concerning giving. That's our text this morning. One is, is concerning uh, prayer, and then one is concerning fasting. Now, he could have used a hundred other illustrations. He could have used... Uh, you know, he could have used hospitality. He could have used uh, the importance of Bible reading. He could have used the importance of, of sharing Jesus with those around you. So he could have used a lot of illustrations, but, but these were the three he used. And, and these, in a lot of ways, form some of the core disciplines, the sort, the, the, the sort of core habits that, that every Christian has to develop if they want to know and love God. Uh, giving. Praying, fasting, it's, it's those, sore, uh, those core habits. Now look at these, um, as he's addressing these sort of core disciplines in our life, these core habits, look at the way that he leads into each of them. He leads into to fasting in verse 16 by saying this, When you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast. He cares about these things. He's assuming that these things are in our life. Uh, He leads into prayer in verses 5 and and verse 7 by saying when you pray, not if you pray. It's not even a question of if. When Jesus thinks about the Christian life, these are are normative practices, normative habits that that he's assuming we're developing. Not if you pray, but when you pray. And then in verse 2, when you give, not if you give, but when you give. Uh, we'll we'll kind of get into the prayer and fasting thing in the next couple of weeks, uh, but our text this morning has giving right at the heart of it, and Jesus is just assuming this is this is normative in your life, right? Like he's just assuming that that giving is there. It's not an if you give, but when you give. Now we should not assume that. We should just take a moment to ask that: Am I an open-handed, generous person? Is that is that true of me? Am I an, open-handed generous person Uh, generosity can play itself out in multiple different ways in our life Um, it can play itself out with our time just think about your week this week you're about to live another week do you regularly just give Jesus permission to interrupt your day to interrupt your schedule so that your day or your schedule actually has the things in it that he would want in it are we generous with our time um, generosity also has to do with our giftings or the talents that God has, in particular, put into us. Are we generous with our giftings? Do we use our giftings for the, for the good of the body of Christ? Are we serving and, and doing those sort of things? Leveraging our giftings for the good of, of the body of Christ? Um, people around us, do, do they, are they the recipient? Do, do they feel blessed because of who God has made us to be, that we're leveraging and sharing that gifting with those around us? Are, are we generous with our talents and our gifting? But this passage in particular has money and possessions as the point of it. Are we generous with what God has entrusted to us? Are we generous with the church with what God's entrusted to us? Is that that present in our life, just an open-handed generosity to the church? If not, this would be a great day to begin the cultivation of, of that habit. But even more particular to this text, he's saying, are you generous with those that are needy around you? When is the last time you have just observed a need around you and, and you, it's a financial need, and you have just stepped into that financial need and said, I am the person that God has said, meet this need. When's the last time that's happened? Hey, part of what Jesus is saying here is that that should just be a, a when it happens. Not an if, but just a when. That should be a regular sort of practice in our life. We're just observing needs and we're stepping into those needs and, and, and meeting them. So let's ask ourselves that question. Is, is that my heart? Am I a generous person? Jesus cares about our doing. What fresh steps can we take today to train ourselves toward generosity, to cultivate that habit in our life? Jesus cares about your doing. That, that's one thing we need to see in this passage. But now we get to the warning. Now we get to the main point. Here's part two. The second thing I want you to see here is that Jesus cares about more than you're doing. He cares about your doing, but he cares about more than you're doing. This is where the passage takes a very hard turn. Chapter 6, verse 1, beware, watch out for this, be attentive to this. Beware of practicing your righteousness, of doing your good deeds. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here's, here's Jesus' primary point in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. The primary point Jesus is making is that motives matter. Motives matter. Jesus cares about what we do, but even more, he cares about why we do what we do. It's really not even that that motives matter. The the point he's making is that motives matter most, that they're most important. Motives matter most. Now think about what he's addressing here, what's happening in this text. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees. And they were doing all sorts of really great external things. They were doing a lot of things. They were known for doing good things. And the the Pharisees oftentimes get a bad rap when we read back into the New Testament now. But if you were alive in the first century, these would be the people that you're like, man, I want to be more like them because they are doing things like they are doing things for God. Like they are giving, they are fasting. This is why Jesus assumes it. And this is why he says, when do you do it? They're the people who are doing it. They're giving, they're fasting, they're praying. They're doing all the sort of things that you would want to see in a person's life. They're doing a lot of good things. And their doing look so good from a distance. I mean, if you were just to kind of glance at their life, it looks so good. But Jesus doesn't just look from a distance. He comes up close So close that he sees through our doings all the way to our hearts to the why behind what we do. Jesus sees that close. And here is what he observed about the Pharisees. Their right outward obedience had been perverted by wrong inner motivations. This was the problem. They were doing right things, but for wrong reasons. Their right outward obedience had been perverted by wrong inner motivations. For the Pharisees, God was not the point of their obedience. Being noticed by others was the point of their obedience. So think about the illustration with giving. They they were not helping the poor. They were purchasing a reputation for helping the poor. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They, they, They weren't giving. They weren't praying for God's sake, they were doing it for their sake. It had nothing to do with helping the poor. They were giving in such a way where they could purchase a reputation for giving. That that was the problem. They were doing the right things, but they were doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And here is the sobering kind of reality that this text is showing us. Jesus sees that. Jesus sees through what we're doing to why we're doing what we're doing. And in this text, he judges that. He, he tells us, you, you, you do that, you, you operate that way, you do the right things for the wrong reasons, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That There is nothing about doing the right thing for the wrong reasons that, that gives pleasure to the heart of God. That, that's what's so sobering about this text is that is possible to do. It's possible for you to do. It's possible for me to do the right things for, for the wrong reasons. You know, when you read the New Testament, this is actually one of the ironic things about the New Testament, is that the best people in the New Testament, the Pharisees, the people who are doing all the things, right, I mean, they, they were doing all of these things that you would want people to be doing, praying, giving, fasting, all of, all of those things they were doing. The best people in the New Testament also received the harshest words in the New Testament. The best people got the worst words from Jesus. I mean, look, look at this. I'll just give you an illustration of this. In, in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 25, listen to what Jesus says to the best people in the New Testament. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But Jesus, he sees through that appearance, But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Texts like this remind us that Jesus is not impressed by what we appear to be. He's not impressed by what we appear to be. Jesus sees through the appearance, He sees through our facades. He sees through the mask that we work so hard to present to others. He sees through all of that all the way into the interior motivations of our heart. Uh, Do you remember that story with uh, Samuel back in the Old Testament? There was this moment where God sent Samuel to go anoint the next king, and he sent him to Jesse's house. So he goes to Jesse's house, and he looks at all the brothers— and he sees David's oldest brother. And when Samuel looks at David's oldest brother, he's like, that's got to be the one. I mean, I, I, what more could you want in a king than that one? But do you remember what God says to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7? It says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Now just let that sober you for a moment. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He looks down into the heart, the interior motivations. He looks behind what we do to why we do what we do. It's not what we appear to be that matters most, but what we actually are. This is what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew chapter 6. It's not what we appear to be that matters, it's not what other thinks you are that matters. It's what you actually are that matters. In, in texts like Matthew chapter 6, verse Samuel 16, part of what they're showing us is we all have an innate pull toward appearance. If I can just look a certain way, then I'll be okay. We all have this innate, this innate pull toward, if I can just appear godly, that, that will be fine. If I can just look godly, then, then, then that'll, that'll be good. Regardless of how I actually feel about God, if if people just think I'm okay with God, then I'll be fine. We all have an innate pull toward that. But it's not what we appear to be that matters most, but what we actually are. Matthew chapter six confronts us with one of the big questions of life. It's confronting us with with that question, deep, deep down where it counts. Not what people think up here, but deep down where it counts, what are we? What are you? What am I? Like deep down where it counts, what are we? Think about all the sophisticated ways we have of classifying and organizing people. And most of them are helpful. We we kind of need ways of classifying people so that we can make sense of the world and the massive amount of humanity that is. So, so we classify people: there is male and female, there is Democrat and Republican, there is old and young, there is good and bad, there's rich and poor. There are just all these ways of classifying people to make sense of people. But in Romans chapter 8, Paul undercuts that whole sort of classification system. He says, all that in the end is too simplistic. He says when it's all said and, said and done, all of those are superficial ways of classifying people. Deep down at the bottom levels, there's really only two categories of people. This is what, one of the things Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. There's only, there's only two categories of people. Here are the two categories. There are those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. When it's all said and done, those are the only two categories that really matter. There are those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Now, flesh and spirit don't show up in Matthew chapter 6. They show up later in the New Testament. But, But those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit, it is the New Testament language to describe what Jesus is addressing here. That deep down there are only two things that are going to motivate our actions. It's either arising up and out of the flesh or it's coming up and out of the spirit. You're either going to be of the flesh or of the spirit. You're going to walk and and have your mind set on the flesh or you're going to walk and have your mind set on the spirit. So what does it mean to, to walk or to have your mind set on the flesh? To set our mind on the flesh means that the tilt of our lives is toward the world. It's just, we're just worldly in our thinking. The tilt of our lives is toward the world. The, The bend of our lives is toward our wants, our fame, our position, our power, our reputation, our coolness, our big dealness. It's just the bent of our life. This is how we just see everything in our life. Everything that we do is in relation to our fame, our recognition, what it's gonna do for me. It's a way of living, a way of thinking, a way of seeing that says, earthly things pay the greatest and they please the most. It's what it means to be, uh, to live according to the flesh. It's a way of living that just leaves God out of everything. We just don't factor God into anything when we're living out of the flesh. God is a side thought. He, he, is, he is to be avoided. He is just somewhere over there. And this was the Pharisees, right? This, is, this was what was motivating the Pharisees. They were of the flesh. What they were doing was of the flesh. They were, they were doing the right things, and they were good things, They're the things that we all should be doing, right? They were doing the right things, but, but it was all grounded in the wrong motives. Everything they do, were doing was in relationship to them, not God. God was, was, was totally avoided. They, they just left God out of everything. Right things, wrong motives. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit, to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? For the person who is living according to the Spirit, something supernatural has happened. They've trusted in the risen Jesus. The Spirit himself now dwells inside of them, controlling them and animating them. Their thinking is no longer dominated by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Their hearts now, the totality of their being, is now bent away from themselves, and it's bent toward Jesus. That, that their own, that, that, that deep and innate, sense of their own big dealness has been dethroned and God has become now the big deal in their life. God's big dealness has become enthroned. The, the world no longer attracts them and is most interesting to them. God is most attractive to them. To live according to the Spirit means that we're obsessed with what the Spirit of God is obsessed with, namely Jesus. So everything we do now is in relation to Jesus. We can't even, we can't even imagine a, a life now that leaves God out. So everything we do now is meant to exalt Jesus, to give glory to Jesus. It's meant to display the beauty and the goodness of God. This is what it means to live in the Spirit. And down underneath all of our actions, we either are grounding them in one of two places. They are either of the flesh or of the Spirit. Ray Ortland, when he's describing this, he says it this way. One person's, this is the person who is living according to the flesh, one person's whole orientation to life is centered on earthly things offering earthly payoffs. This was the Pharisees. And the others, this is the person living or walking according to the Spirit, and the others' whole orientation to life is centered on spiritual things promising heavenly payoffs. One person's heart is charmed and fascinated and rewarded by the treasures of this world, Pharisees, Matthew 6. And the other person's heart is charmed and fascinated and rewarded by the treasures of a higher world. So before we move on, we just need to reckon with that, to reflect on that. Have you ever given thought to not just what you're doing, but why you're doing what you're doing? Have you ever paused just to to, to think on that? That just like the Pharisees, we are prone to doing right things for all the wrong reasons. And when we do right things for all the wrong reasons, it makes all the right things we're doing dead wrong. Have we ever just stopped to consider that? That this is what this text is bringing up and out for us to look at. That that we are prone to grounding even the best of the things we do in the flesh. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Jesus cares about our doing, but he cares about more than just our doing. Here's the last thing. The why, the the motives that that live inside of us. The why is really, really, really hard to see. It's not an easy thing to discern. And and you see that with the first word of Matthew chapter 6. This is why Jesus leads off this section by saying, beware. Like, you're going to have to be watchful. You're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to really look at this if you're ever going to see it. So so be watchful. Beware. These these motives that live in you, this motive of the flesh or of the spirit, they, they live really deep down in the recesses of your heart. And motives, especially when they're not good, they hate to be seen. We would just rather leave them in the deep recesses of our heart. But Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. You're going to have to be watchful. Beware of these things. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to look. You're going to have to unearth these things so you can actually see what is motivating your life. Even the good things in your life, what, what is motivating those things? Picture for a second three ways of living. Three ways of living. Way number one is a person who is openly defying God. So they're openly defying God. That's person number one. Now picture person number two. They openly serve God, but they openly serve God out of the flesh. They're serving God in a way that just leaves God out of everything. It's all about them. It's the Pharisees in Matthew chapter six. So number one, you openly defy God. That's one way of living. Number two, you openly serve God, but out of the flesh. And then number three, a third way of living is to openly serve God, but out of the spirit. Grounded in the spirit, grounded in a a Godward orientation. Most people look at those three ways of living and the big dividing line that they draw is between number one and number two between those who openly defy God and those who openly serve God. That's the grid. They just squish the the category two and three down and treat it as if there's only two ways to live. It's either you openly defy God or you openly serve God. But that is not the way the Bible sees. The, The big dividing line in the Bible is not between person number one and number two, this way of living, openly defying God and openly serving God. The big dividing line in the Bible is between category two and three between those who openly serve God but out of the flesh and those who openly serve God but out of the spirit. This is the big dividing line in the Bible, and part of what Matthew chapter 6 is trying to do is give us a lens to see that, that this is what Jesus pays closest attention to. Is your, is your service of God out of the flesh or out of the spirit? Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones describe this. He says, the only difference between the obvious so-called sinner, category number one, they're openly defying God. The, the only difference between that person, the obvious so-called sinner, and the highly cultured good moral man, that's category number two, that they are people who are openly serving God that they're moral that they're doing a lot of good things. He's saying the only difference between these two people is a social difference. He says it's it's purely a superficial difference. The difference is just skin deep between category one and two, way of living one and way of living two. It's just skin deep. It's just a matter of appearances. But if you crawl behind the behavior of category one and two, these two ways of living, if you crawl behind the behavior and you get all the way down to the heart, what you find is both of those two ways of living are motivated out of the flesh. It just leaves God out of everything they're doing. In both of those hearts, they're still avoiding God. They're still stiff-arming God. They still want nothing to do with God. I mean, this is the ironic thing about really the the New Testament teaching on this, this passage in Matthew chapter 6. The ironic thing about this passage is being good can be a way of being bad. Now, isn't that something? That being good can be a way of being bad. And our good is bad when, like the Pharisees, our goodness is void of God. Our good is bad when our goodness is rooted in the flesh, when it has nothing to do with God. And, and regardless of how good it appears on the surface, when our goodness is void of God, God takes no pleasure in it. That, that's what Jesus is trying to show us in Matthew chapter 6. He takes no pleasure in it. So he says, beware. He's giving a warning. You're going to you're gonna have to unearth those motives that want to stay hidden. You're going to have to do some thinking on this. You're going to have to work at this because that anti-God part of us, that, that part of us that wants to leave God out is so innate in us that even when it's working in us, it's hard to see. That, that we, can, we can be living and operating out of the flesh and just not even know it, have no idea that that's what's happening there. Uh, let me give you an illustration of this. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, there's this interesting moment with Peter. Peter is one of the disciples. He went on to be one of the sort of core pillars in the early church. And there's this moment, one of his best moments uh, in his life. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds by saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes, Peter, that is exactly right. And then Jesus goes on to tell Peter and the rest of the disciples that he is about to suffer and die and and be crucified. He's walking them into what's about to happen in his life. And when Peter hears that, he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus for it. That didn't happen in Jesus We're not doing that. I am not going to let you suffer and die. That is not happening. And do you remember what Jesus says back to Peter? In Matthew 16, Jesus looks at Peter and says, to Peter, to to Peter, the, the guy that just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you were to ask Peter in that moment, uh, Peter, t- tell us what just happened. He would have said, man, I'm just serving Jesus. That's all I'm doing. Jesus, needed to be, he needed to be straightened out. He needed to see some things clear. I'm just, I'm, this rebuke of Jesus is just a way for me to serve Jesus. And all the while, he had no idea that everything he said was in service of the flesh and of Satan. That his mind was set on the things of man, not the things of God. And the only way Peter The only way Peter could see that was for the Lord to point that out in a very personal way to him. Not in a general way to to Peter, but in a very personal way. This is the only way he can show you that and me that, is to point these things out in a very personal way. You're doing right things, but from all the wrong motives, grounded in the flesh. Over the years, God has shown me in some very personal ways how this has played out in my life. One of those came a couple of years into ministry. I I started out kind of doing vocational ministry and student ministry. And a couple of years into that, the staff that I was on at the time, we read a book called Strength Finders. And, um, And as a staff, we read through that. Then we took the test, the Strength Finder test, and it spit out five of your kind of core strengths, and my number one strength was competition. Competition. And then it gave a description of that strength. So we all, our whole staff got into one room together and we read kind of the description of our that kind of primary number one sort of strength that we had. In that room, this was the description read of competition. Competition is rooted in comparison. When you look at the world, you are instinctively aware of other people's performance. I mean, it could have just said, cross-reference, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Their performance is the ultimate yardstick. No matter how hard you try, no matter how worthy your intentions, if you reached your goal but did not outperform your peers, the achievement feels hollow. Like all competitors, you need other people. You need to compare. If you can compare, you can compete, and if you can't compete, you can win. And when you win, there is no feeling like it. You like measurements because it facilitates comparisons. You like other competitors because they invigorate you. You like contests because they must produce a winner. You particularly like contests where you know you have the inside track to be the winner. Yes, I do. Although you are gracious to your fellow competitors, you don't compete for the fun of competing, you compete to win. It was one of the most important moments of my life. Um, when I first read that description, the first thing I thought was, I hate that guy. And the second thing I thought was, I am that guy. But, but it was the moment for me where God ripped back my doing and gave me a sneak peek at the hidden recesses of my heart and the motives that live down there. It was a moment for me to see that so much of what I had accomplished in life at that point, um, academically, athletically, and now even working in ministry pastorally, like I was preaching regularly, I was discipling people, I was serving people. Like Even the best of things, it was a moment where God was showing me that your good things that you're doing, and they're great things, but, but these good things that you're doing that you're even being applauded for, it was a moment where Jesus was telling me, but I'm not fooled by that. I see through your appearances all the way down into your motives. And you're doing all of these right things, but just like the Pharisees, it's for all the wrong reasons. It's motivated out of the flesh. It just It's leaving me out of what you're doing. And this is part of what I hate about a stage, is it's so prone to that. It's so prone. To, the better the thing is that you're doing for God, the more likely it is that you're going to use it for your own fame and selfish ambition and for your own fleshly desires than you are for God. And this is this is what he's showing us in this passage. And that was a moment in my life where he he particularly, he showed me personally, this is what it looks like in your life. Have you had some of those moments where he's showing you that? Here's a right thing, but it's just grounded in all the wrong motives. To help us see our motives, that those, God, they just, they, they, they live so deep in our soul. But to help us see the the why in us, just ask yourself this question. What is it that I really want most in life? Like, like what do I really want the most? Um, I'm not ashamed to admit it, but I really like Harry Potter. I'm in on Harry. And there's this one scene in book one that has stuck with me, and it's this moment when Harry stands before this mirror, the mirror of Erised. And the mirror does not reflect you back, It reflects, in the words of the book, your deepest and most desperate desires. What Matthew 6 is doing is it's holding up that mirror in front of us and saying, I want you to see what is reflected back. What what is your deepest, most desperate desire? So so think about the Pharisees. In this passage, the mirror of said was held up in front of them that their deepest wants, the, the big why underneath all of their doing. And here's what it's showing them. That their deepest desire was not God. They just wanted a reputation for godliness. That they just wanted a reputation for liking God. They didn't really care if they loved him or not. It, it's showing them their deepest desires. And, and this passage is a moment for us to consider that. For us to hold the mirror of set up in front of us and, and to look at it, to see what is reflecting back to us. In the hidden places of our heart, what do we most desperately want? Because what you most desperately want is, is showing you the motives for your doing. It's showing you the, the why. So let me end by just giving some, some positive examples um, in the scriptures, in, in church history of people who, who when, when you peel back the, 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 the layers of their heart and you get down to the motives, you're seeing the right thing, like what, what we would all want to see. Let me just give you some examples of that. People walking not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see this in the Psalms. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I don't just want a reputation for seeking you. No, God, you're what I want. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. The, the mirror of Ara said is held up before the psalmist's heart, and you know what's reflected back? God. My deepest, most desperate desire is, is for God. You, you see this in John the Baptist, in John chapter 3. John's uh, disciples come to him and they say, We've got a problem, uh, John, and here's the problem. All of your disciples are leaving you and they're going and they're like hitching up with Jesus. Like they're all going over there. They've left you and they're, they're, they're over. What are we going to do about that, John? And John looks back at him and in John chapter 3, verse 30, John says, Yeah, they are going over there. And he must increase. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease that's a healthy man. That's a man walking, setting his mind according to the Spirit, not the flesh. The the mirror is held up in front of him, and what is reflected back is, more than anything else, I want Jesus. I don't just want to appear to want, I want Jesus. That's what I want. You see it in Paul in Acts chapter 20. Paul knows that, that uh, his life is coming to an end, that it's about to go really bad for him. So he's parting ways with the elders in Ephesus, and this is where you pick it up in Acts chapter 20, verses 23 and 24. Paul says, The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and, and afflictions await me. It's about to go really bad for me. But, he says, but, but yeah, I, I'm about to die. It's about to go horribly wrong, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's a spiritual man. Unlike the Pharisees, he's looking at his life and he's saying, I, I don't care if I live another year, another five years, another ten years. It's all a vapor anyway. And what I want my life to count for is the name and renown of Jesus. More than anything else, I want Him. He's seeing His life in relationship to God. When you hold the mirror in front of Him, what's reflected back is the glory of Jesus. Or think about Jim Elliott. On June 8, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other men were martyred in Ecuador. They went to Ecuador to uh, try to reach an unreached tribe with the good news of Jesus. And the thing about this particular tribe is every person who had ever made contact with them had all been killed by this tribe. So so what would make a group of men do this? What would make them—I mean, they had wives, they had precious kids. What would make them do that? What would make them risk these sorts of things? What compels a person to do this? Well, five years before his death, on January 15th, 1951, Jim Elliott wrote these words. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree, with the wind tugging at your coattail, And the heavens hailing your heart, my my heart, to to gaze in glory and give oneself again to God. He's just having this moment before God where he's compelled to say, God, my life is all yours again. He goes on to say, "What, what more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, the pleasure, the sheer excitement of knowing God. I care not if I never raise my voice again to God. If only I may love him and please him. Perhaps in mercy he may give me a host of children that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose fingers set them to burning. But if not, if I never have kids, if I never have a family, but if not, if only I may see God. If only I may smell Jesus' garments and smile into his eyes, oh then, not stars nor children shall matter, only God himself. That's a healthy man. That is a spiritual person. That's, That's a Christian. That's a man doing right things from the right desires. When the mirror is held up in front of his life, What appears in the mirror, his his most desperate desire is for Jesus. And what Jesus lived, died, and rose again to do is to put that desire in you. What the Spirit of God now, among the sons and daughters of God, is, is now taking up residence within our heart to do, to produce in you and in me, is that desire to get us out of the flesh and in the Spirit. To to link up, yes, these right actions to to the right motives, to the right desires. That's what God is after in this passage. So, So will you pray with me there where you are? And I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to address you this morning. To press down in you the things that would be helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Picture yourself in front of that mirror. Are the things you want your reputation, your position, your fame, your power, your big dealness? Or in that mirror, is it reflected to you? No, 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 no. My deepest desire is for the glory of Jesus. That's who I want. That's, That's what I want. That's what Jesus wants to give us today. That's what the Spirit of God wants to restore in us today is a heart that wants that more than anything else in the world. And I love this passage because it reminds us twice in this passage, 10 times in Matthew chapter 6, that we have a God who is also our dad. And our dad loves us. He loves us even when we're hypocritical, even when our right actions are divorced from its right motives. He loves us even in that. And and our good dad loves for us to be honest about that. You, You know the way out of hypocrisy? It's just honesty. And as soon as you're honest, you know what you stop being? Is a hypocrite. And Jesus today is inviting you to be honest about your life, to be honest about those interior motivations in your life. And your good dad loves it when we do that. When, when we're honest before him, he doesn't shame us, he doesn't abuse us there, he doesn't embarrass us there. He loves us there. He helps us there. He gives grace to us right there in that honesty. So, oh God, would you help us today in this? God, would you meet with us right here in this moment, in this place? And God, where we see the inner Pharisee in us, God, where we see the wrong interior motivations, God, would you give us courage to confess those things, to repent of those things this morning? God, in in the ways that we each need, in the personal ways that we need, God, will you show us these things? God, and will you cultivate in us a desire for your glory above all else? God, may we be able to say above, above our name, above our glory, above our wants, above our fame, that we want your fame, your glory, your reputation. God, that's what we want. God, help us. And it's in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.